Thanks for tuning in to the Crew at UGA podcast. We are so glad to have you with us. Crew exists to call students to know God, grow in their faith, and go to the world. If you would like to get more connected with Crew at UGA, or if we can help you in any way at all, go to the show notes and click on the link, or follow us on Instagram at Crew at UGA. All right, let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to Crew. Um, I'm Daniel. We're so excited you're here. I don't think I've ever been called the Daniel Mason before, so that's a new one. Um, Hey, as we're diving in tonight, will y'all please join me in prayer? Jesus, uh, I pray tonight that you would give each and every person in this room the keys to a faith that survives, to a faith that's unkillable, to a faith that endures, to a faith that is indestructible, and to a faith that overcomes. I pray that you would do this in your might and by your power alone. Amen. All right, guys, tonight we are wrapping up our series, Stand Firm. We've been going through 1 Peter, and 1 Peter has five chapters, so we're finishing up the fifth chapter tonight, uh, and I'm really excited. But as we're wrapping up, 1 Peter wraps up with this huge crescendo, this huge, like, fireworks display. See, the whole point of the talk and the, the real core theme of 1 Peter, we've been talking about this for the better part of a month, the point of 1 Peter is how, right, do you stand firm or how do you stand firm in your identity in Christ? How do you cling to an identity in Christ in a world that is constantly trying to strip it from you? How do you hold on to your Christian identity when it might cost you? And tonight, as we're diving into the last chapter, this last chapter in 1 Peter ends by highlighting these three keys, these three God-given keys to a faith that survives, to having a faith that is absolutely indestructible. And that's the topic of tonight. If you want to know, tonight is how to have a faith that survives. We're going to dive in without wasting any more time. We're going to dive straight in and just see what these three keys of a faith that survives what they are. We're in 1 Peter chapter 5. We're starting in verse 1. If you've got your Bible, it's going to be on the screen if not. All right. So I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder and as a witness of the suffering of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. Do it willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain. Do it eagerly. Don't be domineering over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading, some of your translations will say undying, there's that theme, undying, crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, in humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace, or he gives his blessings to those who are humble. The first key to a faith that is unkillable is this one, it's summed up in this one word. It's this one word that summarizes this portion of this passage, and it's the word discipleship. If you hang out around crew, you'll hear that word a lot. It's because it's how faith survives. Uh, the word discipleship, what it literally means is life study or life education. And when we hear that word, especially we're at the University of Georgia, when we hear that word study, when we hear that word education, uh, there's a kind of 
image that comes to our mind, right? When you think about studying nowadays in 21st century America, especially in a collegiate atmosphere, you think about head knowledge. When you hear the word study, you think about cramming a bunch of information in your head so you can ace a test. When you talk about the education system that you guys are in, I'm not making a reference on whether it's a good or a bad thing, I'm just pointing out the way it is. Uh, You're talking about a room uh, filled with students who learn from a teacher, most of whom will never know their full name. And most of those teachers will never know a single one or almost a single one of their students' names. The only point in them being there is a a dispensation of knowledge so that the students can pass a test for a grade for a job. That's not life study. That's not life education, and that's not discipleship. Jesus was the, was the first person to ever create this model of this idea of discipleship. He's the one who championed it, right? Our, our God championed it. And when Jesus uh, came on earth, when he was walking around, what discipleship looked like for him, he would walk up to people. We, we see there's, in the scriptures there were 72 disciples that Jesus had that, that we have on record. There were 12 he called apostles that were his like core group. And there were three amongst that group that did everything with him. And when he would call people to discipleship, he would use this phrase over and over again. He would use this phrase, follow me. Follow me. And so when you became a disciple of Christ, what discipleship looked like, that life education, that life study, when Jesus went somewhere, they went with him. So if Jesus moved towns, all 72 of his disciples would follow with him. When Jesus started to talk a certain way, they started to use the same language. When he taught them to think a certain way, they let him change their thinking. When he called them to change their lifestyle, to have a heart change, they allowed him, they made themselves vulnerable enough to allow him that emotional change in their life. See, life study, discipleship, is a relationship where one person, the discipler, pours everything God's given them into the disciple, into the disciplee, until they have everything inside of them. And that requires what First Peter talks about here. He calls it, those of you who are younger, those of you who are disciples, it requires submission. You have to choose to open up your heart, your mind, your soul, your spirit, all your being to the person who's discipling you. And it's this model Jesus said, would lead to a faith that was unkillable. And so this is the first thing I want you all to hear this. It says this at the end of this passage, right? At the end of this little sub-passage. In verse 5, it says, or in verse uh, 4 and 5, it says, The younger of you submit to those who are older. I want you to hear this, guys. If you have not experienced discipleship, And I'm not just talking about going to someone's Bible study once every week or every other week. I'm not even just talking about meeting up with someone once a week for a quick chat and a meal. Or maybe even opening up the Bible or doing a quick coaching session. Discipleship is someone pouring their life into you and you opening your life up to them completely. If you have never experienced that or if you've never opened yourself up emotionally or spiritually to someone, even if they're called your discipler, your faith, this this is a warning from God, not from me, your faith cannot survive. It is the biblical model. When Jesus gave his great commission, he said, make disciples. Discipleship is what keeps the faith of Christianity alive. The reason y'all are in this room is because someone decided to be a disciple. 
decided to let someone into their lives enough for Jesus to pour that stuff into them as well. And you'll never learn it completely. Again, this is the model of Jesus. You'll never follow Christ. The word Christian means Christ follower. You cannot follow Christ without opening yourself up, submitting yourself enough to be a disciple. But if you notice, these first five verses are more focused, actually, on the discipler. The language that gets used in this passage, right, is elder and youngster. Okay, in Greek, that's family language. When Jesus talked about his disciples, he talked about them as sons. When Paul and Timothy, you can read about this in First and Second, the books of First and Second Timothy are really explicit about this. If you want an example of this, uh, Paul, who's a discipler, talks about his disciple Timothy as his son. The language Peter is using here, the language God uses when he talks about discipleship, is the language of a family, of a grandparent to a grandchild or a parent to a to a child. And what they're saying here is your, those of you who decide to actually do this, not just to receive discipleship, but to give it. It's how faith survives. And it's so important because those you disciple are your spiritual lineage. Let me explain. Lineage in the ancient world was more often talked about in terms of this word legacy. Okay. In 21st century America, most of you guys, when you hear the word legacy, you think of the impact you're going to leave on the earth, Right? What, what you leave behind, right? And that's good, that's right. That's actually a proper definition of legacy, except in the ancient world, in, in the time when the Bible was being written, when they thought about legacy, they thought about the literal definition of the word. See, legacy literally means bloodline. It literally means your family tree. What Peter's communicating here, what God is communicating here, is what makes your faith unkillable, the extent of your legacy, your impact on this world is not measured in your accomplishments, your resume, or how many things you've done. It's measured in how many people, in the quantity and the quality of those you leave behind, of your disciples that you leave behind. And it talks about this in terms of a family, spiritual family tree. And this is why we talk about faith surviving. Faith survives because people take their spiritual family trees seriously. And so Peter goes on and on for four verses here talking about how much you need to invest and how you need to invest and invest. Elders, those of you who are discipling amongst you, those of you who've taken that challenge, those of you who are taking the full step of what it means to follow Christ and not just receiving discipleship but giving it, you need to look at it like it's everything. In the ancient world, they had this belief, you were never dead as long as someone who bore your legacy was alive on the earth. No matter how long you'd been in the grave, you were never dead as long as you had heritage. People with your blood were still walking on the earth. And this is what First Peter is telling us. If you want your faith to last, if you want your faith to survive past you, long past your time on this earth, it is all centered around this one concept of discipleship. Will you invest? Will you spiritually parent people? Will you create a spiritual family tree that lasts long after you're in the grave? Because the only reason any of us is in this room is because someone chose to do that. Your faith didn't happen spontaneously. And even if it did, it's not sustained spontaneously. Your faith came from somewhere. It came from someone else's faithfulness. 
is they poured everything they had into someone who poured everything they had into someone who poured everything they had into someone until the message of Jesus Christ got to you. So if you're a Christian in this room, your legacy, the only way to create a faith that survives is through discipleship. It's why the majority of 1 Peter 5, how to make your faith survive, is centered on this. It's the only way that faith survives. Discipleship. Now there's one key ingredient. I don't want you all to miss this. Will you put it up there, Eliza? I don't want y'all to miss this. There's a word that gets repeated right there at the end a bunch of times. Repetition means it's important. Humility. Humble yourselves. Humility. And he says this, all of you, clothe yourselves or cover yourselves, drench yourselves in humility. Now, when we hear that word humility, it's really easy to have a bunch of different images come in your mind. The most, like the, the easiest to access translation for that word humility is another word you'll hear if you stick around crew long enough. Teach ability. Teach ability. Are you teachable? Humility in its literal definition means to be honest with yourself, with others, and with God. That is what it actually like denotation. That's what the definition of that word is. But the demonstration, the connotation, what that word looks like is someone who's teachable. And what Peter's saying is this, if you want a spiritual family tree that lasts, you have to be really good at receiving so you can give. There's a lie we've all heard, whether as a joke or someone actually being serious, unfortunately serious. Those who can't do, teach. Let me correct that statement. Those who cannot do, cannot teach. If you can't humble yourselves and submit to someone under someone's discipleship in the Lord, you will never be able to disciple others. And so, Peter says, the most important thing, all of you, whether you're an elder, whether you're an older Christian or a younger, clothe yourselves in teachability. I, I, wa I want to flesh this out, what teachability looks like. I'm going to give a quick little testimony of what this looks like. Uh, when I was um, uh, here at UGA, I was, I was in a fraternity, and um, uh, my junior year, my junior year, uh, there was this guy who joined the fraternity. His name was Chandler. Uh, and when he was rushing, actually, Chandler almost didn't get a bid. He was very hyperactive. He was very energetic. People didn't really know what to think of him. Uh, wasn't the guy, no one saw him as this, like, crazy leader. No one saw him as this crazy leader. But what a couple of us did see in him was an overwhelming, I mean, I, to this, I, I will make this statement, he, I'd never seen humility like I saw embodied in Chandler. And, and there were me, two guys in our fraternity who, who were starting a Bible study. We were start, starting to disciple guys, me and, me and one of my best friends at the time. And uh, he started to, he didn't even wait for us to come to him. He came to us and literally said, I see Jesus in y'all. Teach me what you do. He literally told us that. I've never seen anyone like that. Ran up to us and said, teach me how to do. I'll do anything you tell me if it gets, you, gets me closer to Jesus and if it gives me the relationship with Christ I see in you, just teach me. Anything is fair game, just teach me. Utter teachability. Here's the catch. When he came in, no one thought much of Chandler Roundtree. But over two years, as he was discipled, my, my friend was an incredible leader and just knew how to motivate people. And within two years' time, everything my friend knew was 
just get everything that God had done in my friend to make him an incredible leader. Chandler Roundtree knew all of it. He'd absorbed every ounce of it, and then some, because he learned it quicker than we did. By the time I was a senior, everything I could teach Chandler about serving people or fighting people or ministry, he had learned and then some because he was half, half his way through college by the time he learned everything that I knew. And so by the time he graduated college, Chandler had brought to the Lord, quadrupled the number of guys that we'd brought to the Lord combined. He had done double the amount of leadership that my friend and I had done. He had done quadruple the amount of ministry I ever did on this campus. His legacy endured. Many of you in this room, I saw one of, a couple of you guys whispering because you know his name. Some of you are in this room because you are the living, breathing legacy of Chandler Roundtree and his humility, his teachability. And the question is, will you submit? Will you make yourself teachable enough? Will you be humble enough to be a true disciple? that makes disciples? Will you fight to submit for the sake of a family tree that your faith would survive, that your faith would be unkillable? The first key to a faith that overcomes, to a faith that survives, the humility to be a disciple. Let's keep going. Verse six, verse six. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he will lift you up. Cast all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. And then this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Some of your translations will say, be vigilant, pay attention. Or some of them will even say, don't miss this. Don't miss this. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood, by your sisterhood, by the spiritual family throughout the world. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Uh, I want to just, the second key... I want you all to hear this. The second key to a faith that survives, to a faith that endures, is knowing your enemy. You have to know your enemy to survive. I don't have time to go into this. This would be a whole other talk, but I want to just say this, and just, y'all need to hear this. Uh, the biblical worldview talks about this a lot if you want a, a chapter for this in Ephesians 6. It says, our world is not just flesh and blood. Our world is not just the, what our five senses can perceive. Our world is spiritual. There's a spiritual reality to this world, and in that spiritual reality, there is spiritual light. There are beings of spiritual light. We often call them in the Bible angels, and there are beings of spiritual darkness. The Bible calls them demons. The chief of them is named the devil or Satan. And the biblical template is that God has been and is, and until the end of time, which will come, until he comes back, will be at war against beings of spiritual darkness. If you look at Jesus, if you want to read through the gospel accounts, you will notice this. There are three things Jesus becomes famous for. If you want to know the core of Jesus' ministry, there were three things. The first was that he was famous for performing miracles. The second was that he was famous for being a powerful preacher 
and teacher. But the third that he was most famous for was the casting out of demons. A third of Jesus' ministry, according to the biblical narrative, was going to war against spiritual darkness. It is a reality that Jesus not only acknowledged, but embodied for us in Mark, when he gives the Great Commission, at the end of the Gospel of Mark, he literally says this, go and make disciples, there's that disciples, discipleship, he says, go and make disciples, your mission as the church, your mission as Christians, go and make disciples of all people, and then he says, casting out demons in my name. Check this out, guys, if you follow Christ, if you're a Christian, you are following him into war. A war for the souls of eternity. And your enemy is very old, very crafty. He's called the craftiest of all creation. He is very good at what he does. And the second you choose to follow Christ, you need to hear this, students. You sign up to be a soldier. In Timothy, Paul describes the Christian as a soldier. He literally calls Christians the soldiers of Christ. And that's what you sign up to be if you follow Jesus. I'm not trying to scare y'all or wig y'all out. This is just a biblical reality. I don't know if you were aware of it, but the second you chose to follow Christ, you chose to follow your commander into a battle for the souls of eternity. Your enemy is real. And because your enemy is real, if you don't notice him, if you don't pay attention to him, if you don't identify him, he will hit you very hard. Some of y'all in this room played football. Um, I remember what it's like being blindsided. It's so much worse. Do not let Satan blindside you. This is what First Peter is saying. Do not Go into a relationship with the Lord, blind to the fact that you are a soldier in the army of the eternal God. You are going to war, and your enemy is real. Now, there's three practical things, three little things I want to highlight here. Three things that you make yourself very vulnerable to when you don't identify the reality of spiritual warfare and the reality that you have an enemy. The first is this. Again, you make yourself free for a blind side. Uh, if you don't acknowledge the reality of spiritual warfare, if you don't acknowledge the reality that Satan might be opposing you. In fact, promises to at some point oppose you. God promises at some point he's going to oppose you. Uh, then when things get hard, you'll think you're doing something wrong. I've seen this so many times. So many times, students, young Christians, they start to follow the Lord and things are going so well and the Holy Spirit fills them up and they get so excited because God is doing things in their life and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, things just get hard. Facing temptations you've never faced before. All of a sudden, you're struggling with things you didn't even struggle with before you were a Christian, right? It's hard to connect with God all of a sudden. And you're wondering why I'm doing everything right. Why doesn't it feel good? Well, it doesn't feel good because you're doing everything right. And Satan hates that. You have an enemy. When you start following the Lord, you run into the battle lines. When you run into battle lines... You will get shot at. And that's a good thing. It's a really good thing to encounter spiritual resistance. It means you're actually following the Lord. Some of you in this room have started to feel that resistance. You need to hear this. Good 
job keep going? Second reason, practically why it's terribly dangerous to not identify your enemy, is that you might misidentify the enemy as yourself. Okay, I've seen this as well. I'm sitting down with a student, and I even mentioned this before, right? You start, to, you start to follow the Lord, and all of a sudden you start struggling with temptations you didn't even feel, and you're like, what is wrong with me? I hear this so often, students coming to me. What is wrong with me? I'm feeling tempted. I'm struggling like never before. Here's the catch. Jesus, perfect Jesus, our perfect spotless lamb, our example, was tempted by Satan. His title is literally the tempter. And while Jesus was in flesh, you can read this in the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus, without sin, was tempted by Satan. Jesus said this in John 14. He said, no, master, no servant is greater than their master. If I went through it, you will too. If Satan tempted Jesus, he will tempt you. And it's not a reflection of your sin. Again, it's a reflection of you doing the right thing. If you're facing temptation like never before, do not let Satan guilt trip you into thinking something is wrong with you. Remember the God who overcame him and that that God is in you too. Last reason, last, last thing that happens we make ourselves vulnerable to when we forget to identify our enemy is we make ourselves liable to misidentify our enemy. Let me explain. Uh, in Job, in the, in the book of Job, it's this great book in the Old Testament, uh, it has over 30 chapters of poetic ancient Hebrew, uh, like, theologizing and, and uh, philosophizing on the nature of why bad things happen. It's all about why bad things happen. And we read all this uh, theology and all this philosophy and this back and forth, it's a bunch of people arguing, it's super poetic, and we get wrapped up in the arguments. But the actual core, it's about this man named Job who, who was the most righteous man of, of his day. And all, of a sudden it's, and all of a sudden, in the midst of his life, the most righteous man of his era, he starts to go through tons of hardship. He loses his family. His friends betray him. He loses all of his wealth. He starts to lose his health. And if you read it, everyone's trying to work through why bad things happen to Job, why bad things happen to the most righteous person of the era. Here's the catch. Job and his friends and everyone who philosophizes and argues in the later 30-some, 40-some chapters of the book aren't given the first two. At the beginning of the, of the book, it actually tells us, before we get into all the philosophizing, the actual reason. It's supposed to be an irony. We're actually told at the get-go, why bad things are happening to Job? And the answer is Satan. Satan attacks Job, and he literally says this to God's face. He says, if I attack Job and he doesn't know it's me, he'll blame you. If I attack Job and he forgets about me, which he is going to, he's going to think it's you doing this. And he's going to start seeing you as his enemy. And guess what? It almost works. Satan is not creative. He's just really good at what he does. If it worked on Job, he will try it on you. I cannot tell you how many times I've sat down with students as they are entering into spiritual resistance, as they're entering into spiritual warfare, as they're entering into doing really amazing things for the Lord. And the struggle starts. And I'll sit down with them 
And as they sit down, they're just filled with bitterness and anger and hurt. And they're crying out, why is God doing this to me? Why is God tempting me? But in James it says God does not tempt us. Satan is the tempter. Why is God torturing me? But he's never known as the cruel one Satan is. Why God? And the genuine question to ask yourself is, is it actually God? It's a really old trick in Satan's book. Job is arguably the oldest book in the Bible. It's a very old trick of his. He will try and misidentify himself. It literally says this. It says, he prowls around like a lion. The, identify, the, the identity of God in the Old Testament, one of the ident- ways in which the ancient Hebrews would talk about God, they'd say he was the lion of Judah. It says he prowls around like a lion. Do not misidentify your lion. Do not misidentify your enemy. There's one last key. Don't misidentify your enemy because your God is so much stronger. Verse 10. And after you suffered for a while, the God of all grace, all blessings, all power, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you because to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In the ancient world, when you wanted to give someone an identity, you gave them a name. I want you to hear the names of God, the character of God that he was attributed to him. In Isaiah, it said he would be known, or his identity, his very character, he says he is wonderful, the counselor who gives clarity, everlasting, indestructible God, almighty, the prince of peace, that word is literally Sar Shalom, the conqueror who brings wholeness to our lives. This is your God. This is his character. And this is the one who's called you. If you enter into a Christian identity, you need to hear this, you are entering into a war. It will cost you more than you think you can bear, and it will be worth it because he is worth it, and you will win because the last of those titles is Yahweh Nisi. God is victory. It is impossible for him to lose. He does not know the meaning of the word. And if he is inside you, you will win. I want to end with a quick testimony. Some of y'all might have heard this one before, but I think some of y'all need to hear it. My sophomore year, I mentioned that fraternity, my sophomore year uh, was the best, worst year of my life. Uh, That year, I decided to share the gospel in my house. And uh, as I went to the house and started to share the gospel and started to pour into guys, things got terrible. The more I prayed, the worse I felt. The more I shared, the more rejection I got. Uh, The more I tried to love guys, the more they actively tried to hate me and reject me. This went on for about three months until Halloween night. I literally 
was on my knees begging through the night for the Lord to get me out of this fraternity. I had never been more alone. I had never felt more tortured, more depressed, more anxious, more confused in my entire life. And I kept thinking, I'm doing everything I thought you called me to, God. I'm doing everything I thought you called me to. Why are things so bad? And I started praying and praying through the night as I prayed. The Lord just kept saying, stay, 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 stay. But there's another voice that kept saying, get out, get out, get out, get out. Until get out, I heard audibly a voice say, get out. And I opened my eyes for my praying. And there was just this dark presence in front of me. There was a face without mirth. A face of absolute malice. And I was staring down my enemy. And he told me my greatest fear. If you stay here, you will be alone. And even if God shows up, you will never see it. You will give your life to this. You will give your life for this cause. You will give your life this war in college and it will not be worth it. I thought I was going to break down. I thought I was going to give up at that point. But what rose up from deep inside of me was the Holy Spirit. I've never felt such anger. I have never been so focused. I have never been so furious in my entire life. And what rose up in me was an answer, which praise God did not come from me. I said, break me to pieces, but I will watch you burn in hell. I know how this ends. It ends with God winning and you losing. So come what may, let's go. And he left. And things got so much worse. But I knew I had an enemy. So when things got worse, we kept praying until at Christmas time, there was a freshman who prayed to receive Christ. And things actually got more resistant and people started to reject more until another freshman who was struggling with alcoholism quit cold turkey and ended up entering into leadership in another ministry. Until a month later when another one and another one and slowly, month by month, year by year, we just kept seeing people latch onto discipleship with real legacy until by the time I was a senior, when I had my last day in that house, I remember looking out and seeing 30 guys following the Lord. It will cost you more than you think you can handle. Because without him, it is more than you could ever handle. But with him, you cannot lose. This is how faith survives. It survives through discipleship where you pour everything you have into someone, where you open up yourself up in humility to be a disciple who makes disciple disciples. By identifying your true enemy and by entering into the war, knowing that whatever it costs you, your God is Yahweh Nisi. Your God is is victory, and when you raise him up, he cannot lose. It's with that God that we send you out, students, this summer. Let me pray for you. Jesus, 
Yahweh Nisi, I pray your victory over these students' lives. I pray, God, that you would fill them up, Lord, with your humility, fill them up with your discipleship-making DNA. God, I pray that they would see your legacy in their time, God, that they would see generations, Lord, and that even after, Lord, their time is gone in this university or even in this life, Lord, that they would have a spiritual inheritance, that they'd have a legacy of followers of you, Jesus, that bear their spiritual DNA that goes on to eternity. I pray, Lord, that you would equip them for battle and that Yahweh Nisi, you would overcome the evil one, that you would be almighty God, everlasting Father, that you would be their conqueror of peace. And we pray this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.